Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, birthright citizenship and immigration. So Richard, uh, presidential election season never ceases to surprise. Who would have thought that going into September uh, we'd be talking about the 14th Amendment and birthright citizenship and yet here we are. Uh, Donald Trump was the one who pushed this issue to the fore because he released this policy paper on immigration. It says that he wants to end the practice of, of birthright citizenship, which conveys citizenship to a child born in the United States regardless of the legal status of the child's parents. Um, why don't we start here, Richard, just kind of on, on first principles because we've spent the last couple of weeks with everybody going back and forth about arguments over citizenship. What is citizenship? What does the constitution tell us about what citizenship means? Ah, this is a question which is extremely difficult to answer. Uh, the first thing to note is the term citizen is used in the 14th Amendment, just as it is used in many other places in the Constitution. Um, it is used to describe who is eligible for being serving in various offices. And the President of the United States has to be a natural-born citizen. Other people can become naturalized as citizens. Uh, citizenship has a lot to do with the ability of the federal court to hear disputes between citizens of different states. And if you think that's an arid technicality, it should be noted that the Dred Scott decision, which precipitated the Civil War, was in fact the construction of who becomes a citizen or not uh, when a slave is released into freedom by his master. And then this whole thing gets picked up in the 14th Amendment, and Section 1 says, and I'm just going to read it, all persons born or naturalized in the United States, comma, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, comma, question mark, explanation point, asterisk, <laughs> are citizens of the United States and the states of which they reside. Now, this is not just an idle kind of a proposition because there's a huge payoff to being a citizen in the United States because the next sentence says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Exactly what that means, we're not sure, but privileges and immunities is a basically a high-powered term which suggests that amongst the other things that you have are the right to acquire property and the right to engage in lawful occupations. And then it's contrasted with the next two clause, nor shall any state deprive any person, person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction, which is not the same thing as subject to its jurisdiction, the equal protection of the laws. And so what happens is you first get a definition now of who counts as a citizen. Then there's a payoff for that because citizens get all sorts of advanced privileges and immunities. And then there are other benefits that are given to persons who are in the United States, including aliens, which do not attack the citizenship. So it really seems to make a huge difference as to who is or is not a citizen in, in this particular case. But the term is undenied, the one is undefined. The one thing that is clear is that the first sentence was designed to overrule Dred Scott 
the, the great slave case, which it held that the release of a slave uh, did not make him a free citizen entitled to access to protection of the federal courts. And so now what we do is we've solved that particular problem. But the question is, in addition to solving the slavery problem, have we created others? And one of the issues that one then worries about is the question, what is the status of A, aliens, and B, the children of aliens? And that's the way in which you get to the birthright citizenship question uh, that Donald Trump, um, bless his soul, has managed to put front <laughs> and center in the debate. And what this, is, what this has really turned on is an argument over whether if you want to get rid of this policy, if you want to get rid of the idea that the child of illegal aliens gets citizenship by virtue of being born on American soil, do you have to – amend the constitution or is it permissible within existing law? This all turns on a Supreme Court case from the, the late 19th century and a case that deals with the child of people who were not illegal aliens. So how much how – much, explain what happened in that case and then how much we can extrapolate from that to understand the legal standing now. OK. Look, I mean the case you're referring to is the United States versus Wong Kim Ark, and it was decided in 1898, and there was a dissent, uh, so it's a divided opinion. And what the case involves was a person born in the United States of parents of Chinese descent, um, and his parents were in fact subjects of the Emperor of China, but they had permanent domicile and residence in the United States and were carrying on business there. And they weren't working in the diplomatic corps. All of this is in the first sentence of the syllabus, so I'm not making it up. And what you have to do is to now figure out what some of these words mean. Uh, permanent domicile and residence are very technical terms. Domicile is essentially a place in which you are permanently attached and which becomes the focal point of your legal rights and duties. So in the conflicts of law questions, if you say about somebody that the rights and duties of his marriage will be determined by the place of his domicile, what you mean is where his permanent address turns out to be, you don't mean it's going to be when he goes on a vacation to the Hamptons that all of a sudden it becomes New York law if he's going to live in Missouri. And these guys, the parents, were permanent residents, domiciled in the case. And so what happens is the birthright citizenship in this particular situation just simply stands for the proposition. If you have somebody who is here, who is here lawfully, who's here with permanent roots to the United States, and then deciding that their children are subject to the jurisdiction thereof is in fact a perfectly respectable way of thinking about the subject um, and you, they become citizens. What makes it a little bit more complicated is you then ask the question, are they also citizens of China by virtue of the fact that their parents were Chinese citizens? And then there's the question of whether that has to be determined by American law or by Chinese law. And then just to make it a little bit more complicated, you have to ask the question whether or not citizens ship requires unique loyalties or whether or not you could have dual loyalties. And it's just very difficult to unscramble all of the omelet. But one of the things I did very briefly when I looked at this case is I typed the word illegal in to see whether it popped up and it did not. Um, so this is not a case in which you're talking about illegal aliens. It's not a case in which you're talking about sojourners, that is temporary people moving in and out. Um, but there certainly is language in the majority opinion which makes it pretty clear that sojourners, if they have children in the United States, if they're legally here at least, then their children become American citizens by virtue of the birthright. The rule tends to be more or less 
otherwise in most other uh, civilized nations. The United States is something of an outlier on this particular question. But the English rules seem to be uh, that uh, sojourners and their children, the children would get birthright. There's no constitution in England. They certainly can change it. And for all I know, they may well have done so. What do you make, pulling back from the legal side for a moment, what do you make of the actual desirability of the practice as a policy matter? You mentioned that we're an outlier. There are only 30 countries in the world that have this practice. Almost all of them are in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, one of the arguments against it is that it's an unnecessary concession on national sovereignty grounds, that a nation really needs more discretion than that in deciding who is or isn't a citizen. Is that persuasive to you? Well, look, it, it, this is a kind of a deep irony. What we do understand is that if you want to keep anybody out as the sovereign of a nation, you could do so for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all. And all of the stuff having to do with the 14th Amendment is restrictions on the way in which states behave, but none of them are a restriction on the sort of national policy of letting citizens in or out. It's also the case that if you're a naturalized citizen and you get there by fabrication of key evidence in your papers and so forth, you can be unceremoniously removed even if you've given birth to children who are citizenship here and you've laid down your life. Uh, so what we do is we have this very strong power. So then the question is, suppose you tell to somebody, you know, we see this stuff on the 14th Amendment. You want to come into the United States. What we now require of you is to say that you're going to waive any claim of citizenship on behalf of children that you should subsequently have while in the United States um, if, in fact, you become illegal. I don't see anything in the 14th Amendment which addresses that potential complication associated with the waiver. And if you look at the general views on um, immigration where the power is virtually plenary and the deportations are severe, it would be odd to say that you could yank people out without so much as a, you know, a, a second buy or leave and then at the same time you cannot condition the entry. Uh, so to me, it's completely unsettled which way it goes. Um, I've not seen anybody do it. But somebody could say, look, you know, we've got this constitution here. Subject to the jurisdiction only refers to people who are members of Indian tribes, not relevant in these cases, uh, to people who are in the diplomatic corps and are thus still working for a foreign government. doesn't apply to anybody else. And so the first sentence, in effect, um, by creating people as United States citizens does not just bind the states like the rest of the 14th Amendment, but binds the national government. I think it's a fairly close case, and as best I can tell, I'm not aware of any law on the particular issue. So again, the matter is, I think, extremely complicated. I, I have tried to figure out abstractly the way all the citizenship provisions of the United States Constitution fit together, and it's a very difficult case to sort them out in a rational fashion. Sort of a, a side question here, but I think an interesting one. Let's assume, just for the sake of debate, because this clearly isn't the case based on what you've just said, but let's assume for the moment that if this was a closed case and that the 14th Amendment did absolutely guarantee birthright citizenship, even if that was the case, that doesn't mean it has to be the policy forever and for always. It just means that to undo it, you'd have to have a constitutional amendment, which some people have suggested on this front. And you know, we've seen the idea of amendments come up a few times on some other fronts recently on the right over gay marriage, on the left over campaign finance. Here's the question though. To amend the constitution, you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress, three-quarters of the state legislatures. There are alternative methods but that's the main one. It has now been a quarter century 
since we last passed the constitutional amendment, that was a pretty modest one on congressional pay raises. It's been almost 45 years since the last substantive one, uh, lowering the voting age. Is it reasonable to conjecture that as long as America stays as, as polarized as it is right now, that that mechanism of a constitutional amendment is essentially offline for the foreseeable future? I, I, the thought that you could get, given the huge amounts of racial polarization and political polarization in the United States, any amendment that would offer, alter what the Constitution requires, I think is a zero probability of passage. And in fact, uh, just to raise the problem, I think would create major social dislocations, uh, accentuate the bitterness and make it even more difficult to come to some rational way in which you try to handle the question of what you do with the children of illegal aliens. Um, the harder question is now that somebody puts the question squarely in front of you and you says, look, I mean, here you've got this precedent in Wam Kim Ark. And to some extent, it seems to be very much on the sort of automatic birthright citizenship side. But it doesn't deal with the illegality question. And there are just a huge number of legal principles applicable in 1868 as they are today, which says that no person shall be able to profit from their own wrong. Uh, so you cannot inherit property from somebody if it turns out that you kill a testator in order to make sure that that person does not change his or her will. And some could say is, look, you've got this constitution. That gloss is something which you have to read into it the way you'd read it into virtually every other doctrine of law. And then there are other people going to say, you know what? Implication like this is an extraordinarily dangerous game, and we just don't want to start that. Now, how do you resolve that particular question? Um, gets you into one of the hardest questions of constitutional interpretation. In general, there are many people who call themselves textualists, and what they try to do is to parse the meaning of the terms, either in its original context or an evolutionary context, and treat that as the sole sum and substance of constitutional interpretation. I'm convinced that that is wrong. As I say endless numbers of times on this show, that the central doctrine of American constitutional law in many cases is the so-called police power limitation on individual rights. The words police power are nowhere in the Constitution. And yet, if you're trying to make sense of a provision which talks about protecting the freedom of speech, you can't allow it to protect civil conspiracy or conspiracies to commit murder or ordinary cases of fraud. So you have to have some way in which to make sure that actions which go against the health and safety of the people of the United States are not receiving these blanket constitutional protections. Everybody accepts that. And the only question is in practice is how far do they go? Well, when you're dealing with this particular case, the illegality principle is extremely powerful. And so if you have these huge police power exceptions, do you want to carry it over to other areas where in fact you have people who are violating American law and say they cannot profit from their own situation? Um, I could give you the Roman maxim, ex terpi causa non orator actio. Out of an illicit cause, no cause of action, i.e. no entitlement, can arise. Um, if you're going to do this, what you will see is a kind of an odd reversal. You will see most of the people in favor of uniform birthright citizenship take the textual line, be very reluctant to allow for its modification based upon these collateral principles that underlie all written documents. And then you'll see many of the conservative originalists come forward and say, why, of course, we have to read the gloss about illegality into the Constitution. Now, I generally am in favor of reading these glosses in, but there's another complication. Nobody has read it into the Constitution now for about 150 years. It's 147 years. After a while, 
if the original meaning may have been one way, i.e. that illegal aliens do not give citizenship rights to their children, but we've done it the other way for so long, does that kind of create a prescriptive right which is extremely difficult to overcome? And in the American constitutional traditions, we've got a lot of those things. I mean, most people don't seem to realize it or much care anymore, but the foundations of American jurisprudence on judicial supremacy with respect to legislation by the federal government and of legislation by the state rest upon some very tenuous interpretation of key constitutional provisions. But nobody in their right mind would say, you know, Marbury v. Madison, good try, Justice uh, Chief Justice Marshall. Sorry, it's wrong, and it is. And somebody <laughs> would say to Justice Story, you know, you really did huff and puff on the reading the Judiciary Act to make sure that federal courts could override um, state interpretations nullifying constitutional protections. But, you know, they're the final arbiters of that if you look at the way in which the supremacy clause is written. Nice try, Justice Story. You're out too. And then what you do is you have a complete revolution in constitutional structure after 200 years of doing it one way. So the cross currents are extremely powerful. The states are extremely high. My guess is uh, that the status quo will probably win even if it turns out that on the basis of legal theory, to the extent that I understand it, subject to revision, I think that probably the people who say that birthright citizenship extends to children of illegal aliens in the United States is probably not what was intended um, by the uh, text of the 14th Amendment. And it's probably uh, not something that you would want to read literally against the rather systematic conceded charge of illegality. This, that, I think, is the originalist position. Um, and then there's this prescriptive position. And as I wrote in my book on the um, classical liberal constitution, the two are perpetually at war. And that's exactly what you see in this particular case. And then the Epstein political science prediction is, on a matter of this importance, uh, ties go to the defendants, i.e. to the defenders of the status quo, uh, so that the provision would be interpreted uh, the way in which many notable scholars think it was. John, you was written that way on the right. My uh, Susanna Sherry, who was a former student of mine at the Vanderbilt University, was on NPR taking the same kind of position. John Eastman, another one of my students, I'm happy to say, writes very eloquently on the other side. I mean, uh, but there are real complications and uh, that is the way I think it's going to break down. So my guess is that it's going to be a huge debate, but no change. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.